Lent began on Wednesday, February 17th. For some of us, it just seems like it's so long ago. It's a tradition. Many churches encourage their folks to enter in. It's not something, again, where you give up something or try to please God in in some odd or abnormal way in order to get brownie points. It's a time literally for us to prepare so that we might be able to maybe see the cross with fresh eyes. Maybe experience what God did when he raised Jesus from the dead and gave him life and life to all those who believe. Well, we are coming into the end. This Friday, we gather together twice as a community to be able to reflect, to be able to mourn. We're here to be able to focus on the unbelievable sacrifice that Jesus made for every one of us because we are separated. And then after three days in a grave, we come and, and next Sunday, the celebration of all celebrations, a time when we praise God because of his unbelievable plan and love for each one of us. Perhaps you haven't spent 40 days preparing your heart. Perhaps that hasn't seemed necessary, and, and honestly, I'm not here to beat you up. But there are a few days. There are a few days left before Good Friday. And maybe God will use these times for you to look at your life, to go deeper than you might normally go so that when Good Friday comes, it'll be a time where our hearts are broken again for all that our God has done. You know, before we jump into our study in Acts, so many of you know we're in that book. Let's pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You are the God of gods, the creator, the almighty. You deserve all honor, God. Today is Palm Sunday. A time when we look back in history. You know, Lord, we, we see how fickle the people were. One day they were worshiping you, and the next day they're crucifying you. But, Father, we aren't much better. We are so unpredictable. One day we're worshiping you, and the next day we're blinded by our sin and our rebelliousness and our selfishness. We hurt you 
and we heard us. We are so glad that you, Lord, are a God who is compassionate and gracious. You are slow to anger. You are abounding in love and faithfulness. We don't want to hurt you by our sin. So cleanse us from our iniquities, the things which block a relationship with you. Cleanse us from our selfishness. Cleanse us from our lack of forgiveness, from the grudges that we hold, from our lack of love that we extend to others. We want to worship you with glad hearts. We want to come into your courts with thanksgiving. We are so grateful for your power and your authority and your justice and your love. And so we pray that thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask you, Father, to use your church, your bride, locally, nationally, and internationally. We pray this day for a few churches in our area, the chain of lakes and connection and fierce churches. We pray not only for them, but we pray for all those that name the name of Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. Let us represent you well, Father. May your kingdom advance powerfully. We pray for our country. We pray for its leaders. We pray, dear God, you would draw them to yourself. And they would pass laws that would glorify your name. We pray for the sick, the infirmed, the discouraged, the depressed. Lord, just even this morning we heard of Karen Knight and her hospitalization. We pray, dear God, that you would give doctors wisdom and you would Bring health to Karen. We pray, Father, for your preaching today. That your teacher wouldn't muddle your word. That you would use your word powerfully in our hearts. Convict us, change us, empower us, strengthen us. Those are just some of the things your word does. God, we thank you for the book of Acts. We thank you for the way it's inspired us, and we thank you for the way your spirit has used it to convict us. So open up our hearts. Open up our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. We pick up our story about 10 years after Christ's triumphant entry into Jerusalem. That's what Palm Sunday is about. And after, again, you, you know that Jesus came in and shouts of Hosanna were there. It was just a few days later when he was tried and crucified and buried. Well, then Jesus rose from the grave. And it was this resurrection that absolutely convinced all of his followers that Jesus was Savior and Lord. 
Now, if you've been with us in the study of Acts, you, you know lots happened in these next few years. But it's about 10 years to our text today. The resurrected king did give instructions to his followers. And for the most part, they listened. And the world was being transformed at the moment. And we'll be in Acts chapter 11, near the end of Acts chapter 11. We'll be starting at verse 19. But at the moment, when we open up the scriptures today, the Jerusalem church was praising God. There have been some huge paradigm shifts for this early church. The biggest initial shock was that the Spirit was living in every Jewish believer. They couldn't believe it. God said that this would happen. But to actually have God living in you, it was a brand new experience for thousands of Jews. But then, if you've been with us in our study, the biggest initial shock got even worse. The Holy Spirit then indwelled Samaritan believers and Gentile believers, folks that the Jews were extremely prejudiced against. Not only did the church wrestle with this new reality, they were being persecuted. Yet, in spite of the persecution and the outside pressures, this early church was growing literally by thousands. The gospel was being preached, and it was bearing fruit everywhere. The gospel, it was simple. In some ways, and and yet so amazing Normal people would go out and share their story of transformation. They would be in the marketplace, or they would be actually even in the synagogue at times. And they would just normally and naturally let people, hey, I just want you to know about Jesus, my Savior. I met him, and he changed my life. I am a transformed person. I came to a place in my life where I saw that he died in my place because literally... I was separated from God because of my sin. And because Jesus died, I put my faith in him. And as soon as I did that, I became a child of God, a son of God. And the Holy Spirit indwelt me. The Holy Spirit lives in me. God lives in me and is chipping away all the things that don't magnify him well or reflect him well. And I'm on this journey, and I am so joyful that God gets to, well, change me so that I'm an unbelievable instrument for his honor, for his glory, wherever I go. Can you believe it? That God loves me that much and is doing that in me. Whoa, would you like to have a relationship with Jesus too? (laughs) the Spirit was working. And the answer, more often than not, was yes. Yes. 
I want that relationship. I want to be transformed. I want what you have. People at this time were truly loving each other in spite of the cultural prejudice. The church was being filled with all kinds of different people, all being redeemed by the Lord. They gathered together, these groups, and did what families do. They learned about God. They had deeper relationships. They worshiped and they prayed. Faith was being strengthened. Sacrifice was normal. And there was extreme joy in all these pockets of believers. Meanwhile, meanwhile, isn't that something, whenever you get to that in a book, me, you know, like, you know, we need to have some organ music. No, we don't have an organ. We, uh, you know, like, meanwhile, turn your Bibles, Acts chapter 11. This, again, will encourage your heart. Acts chapter 11, starting at verse 19. Meanwhile, see it's there. The believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to the Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them. And a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. Now again, maybe you're newer to this whole study, but what happened is very early in the church's existence that persecution did happen. And there was a man named Stephen, a deacon of the church, who was powerful and bold and loved God and was filled with the Spirit. And they tried to, well, destroy the church by destroying Stephen. Well, as soon as Stephen was stoned to death, persecuted because he loved the Lord Jesus and stood up for him, what happened is persecution came to these early believers in Jerusalem and forced them to leave what was comfortable and go into really what we're going to see into the whole world. We find out in our text that the word of God was preached It means the gospel again was proclaimed wherever these scattered believers went. They were sharing their story of a life-altering relationship with Jesus. None of them went to seminary. In fact, none of them were part of a church for very long. But they did have a relationship with Jesus and they knew how it transformed them. And that was the message that they gave out. In our text, it says the Jews only up in Antioch were the ones who were hearing the message. But eventually, this is so cool. Eventually, other believers from a surrounding area of Antioch, they preached to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. And the scriptures say this, that God's power 
was with them. What does that mean? It means that they were walking with God. It means that the Spirit had indwelt them. It means that when they were sharing God's Word, that God's Word went out powerfully. Some of us, again, think that when we testify, when we share, that it's our silver tongue or it's our intelligence. Maybe you have a silver tongue and maybe you're really smart, but it's not that. (laughs) It isn't. It's God's Spirit working in you, every one of us. Because it's God's Word that is powerful, that's transforming. And you're going to see that over and over and over again. And the Scripture right here says that a large number of Gentiles believed. Now, I got to tell you, this is a bit shocking, and I use that word a lot, and you may not even be shocked, but folks, these believers were shocked. They knew God's power, but they also knew what Antioch was and where these Gentiles were living. They were shocked because this was a rather vile place. Antioch, let me just give you a little bit of history, was a major ancient metropolis. It was the third largest in the Roman Empire, just behind Rome and Alexandria. This place was huge. It was noted for its culture and its commerce, since many Roman trade routes passed right through it. Now here's the part that should grab you. It was also known, had a reputation of being a most vile place. It was full of pagan worship and sexual immorality. The occult prostitution at the temple of Daphne was only five miles away. Literally, people from all over the Roman Empire came to this city in order to indulge in their sexual and pleasure fantasies. So this is where believers came to faith. This is where some of the Gentiles lived in this environment. They heard good news. You would never think they would trade some of this sensual pleasure for Jesus. But they saw how empty that was. They recognized the good news that Jesus Christ came to transform and give life abundant and eternal. And when the gospel was presented, they jumped on it. Now, Let's just be reminded of this, and and it's going to keep happening, but persecution forced Christians to the despicable town of Antioch. Now, let me remind you, some of you may be living in Antioch. We're we're not talking Antioch, okay? Talking a different place, although that town might... No, I, I don't think it is, okay? But as we look at this, God used the persecution to get good news into all the world, even the dark places 
of our world. Believers filled with the Spirit preached about the Lord Jesus and what was so unique. And you're going to see it over and over and over again in the book of Acts. But they saw persecution as an opportunity, not as a barrier. You do realize that many of us have a different mentality than that. Oh, I work in such a vile place. You should hear that language. Okay. Or, oh, you know what? My neighborhood, whoa, it's pretty wild. Yeah. And you keep going on and on and on and on. And all God says, do you understand? You're my messenger. I am putting you in all these wonderful places. So you, yes, can share the gospel. You can. Let people know of how God has transformed your life. Oh, Rick, you do not understand how vile this is. Even my home. Some of you come from really hard homes, environments. Oh, you don't know my wife. You don't know my kid. You know, I mean, they are never, believe me, nah, they're not going to respond. You know, may God continually change our perspective. Because it's God's word that does the changing. It's the Holy Spirit that does the convicting. All we are are spokespeople. Telling others how wonderful and gracious and terrific our God is. Well, I'm just not smart enough and I don't know a lot about the Bible. Hey, all I'm saying is this. If you met Jesus and you understand that he saved you and you needed a savior and you responded, you are a new creation. And whoa, that message changes people. So many responded to the gospel and literally the Antioch church was birthed and grew. Now, here's a little bit of of irony. This should make you smile a little bit, okay? Especially those that have been with us in this study. Jerusalem Church, remember, that's where all the big cheeses are, the apostles, all the holy, never mind, the original church, okay? They heard about Antioch, and they're going like, oh, whoa, no. I know these Gentiles like, can come to faith. But are you serious, Antioch? Antioch can't. No, it can't happen. So this is what happens in verse 22. Follow along. When the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived and saw the evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy and encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith. And many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. It was at Antioch that believers were first called Christians. 
neither the salvation of the Ethiopian eunuch nor that of the officer Cornelius and his whole household had prepared the Jerusalem believers for the widespread Gentile conversion all over the world. When the news of Antioch's revival reached the ears of the Jerusalem church, they decided to send a representative to investigate. Honestly, I don't think it was to make sure that they were doing all the right things. I think it was more, as we're going to find out, hey, why don't you go help these new believers? This, this is unbelievable what's going up there. Go. And so the church, the Jerusalem church, sends Barnabas. We were introduced to Barnabas back in Acts chapter 4. We also heard about Barnabas in Acts chapter 9, which we're going to look at. But the Bible tells us that Barnabas was a good man. He had a good reputation. He was filled with the Spirit. Or in this manner, you could say he listened to the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. When the Spirit prompted him to do certain things, he obeyed the Spirit. And he was strong in his faith. And we're going to see this. But what a reputation. In fact, let me just put it this way. Things were different when Barnabas was in a room and when he left one. Wouldn't that be an awesome reputation to have for each one of us? Not again, oh boy, look who's coming, wager. Whoa, that's a downer. Really? Every time he's in the room, man, I go home depressed. Or what? How about he walked into a room and things changed? There was a different perspective. There was someone who was walking with God who listened to the Holy Spirit and responded to people's needs and used the Scripture not as a hammer, but as a tool. Some things that, you know, you hang around with some and they share with you what God's teaching them. You hang around with some and you're encouraged when you leave. And when they say, I'm going to pray for you, isn't it cool that you believe some people? I think this is Barnabas. I, I do. What a privilege. What an honor to represent God in the church. In fact, I really think it's the same privilege and honor we have today. Because we are God's instruments, and we're going to keep looking at this. We are people who are representing God wherever we go. Whether in this church or whether in the marketplace, whether in the grocery store, wherever we go, we are God's ambassadors. And we can be really cranky and really crabby and really self-focused and really make sure all of our rights are, well, given. Or we can listen to the Spirit and watch God work in some amazing ways. Maybe it's just Ed Jewel picking out some Cara Cara oranges. And you look to your left, and there's someone else at Jewel picking out Cara Cara oranges. Could it be? 
but wait a minute, you're too much in a hurry. You got your kids waiting in the car. You, you just came in really, really, really quick. And, and that might be true. But what happened is wherever we go, whoa, what would happen if you really thought God was sovereign and God really was in control and God always had the right people cross your path? What would happen? What would happen? How exciting that would be. You'd go home and around your dinner table every, every night you would say, you can't believe what happened to me today. I was over there picking carrot, carrot oranges. I had this unbelievable conversation. Really? I, well, yeah, I, I don't know what happened. God must have done it. And I had the privilege of sharing hope. I told them all about who my Jesus was and why I'm grateful to get up every morning. Oh, cool. All right. Now, how cool, if you even look at this, and we want to go too deep into this, but how cool that Barnabas was, Cyprus, was from Cyprus. That's the very island that produced the evangelists where the folks who came to Antioch, because remember, the Jewish population was only talking to the Jews, but these folks from Cyprus, they saw the Gentiles and they preached to them. Barnabas was from there. He maybe even knew him. But what's so cool about the Jerusalem church was this. They chose the right leader. It was critical that they understood who were they going to send up there. And they sent up a good man full of the Spirit who had great amount of faith. How, how cool is that? Now, as we read, Barnabas arrives. And he quickly notices that God's at work. God's blessing is everywhere. He is so filled with joy. He didn't know what he'd see. He didn't know what he'd encounter. All he heard, literally, is that people are coming to faith. But he walks into the city. And there's people who are joyful. People who are sharing their faith. God is transforming. This church is growing. And he's rejoicing at the sight of God taking over a city. Scripture tells us that he encourages the believers to be loyal and remain true to the Lord. I, I think this gives us a little insight of anybody who works with people, and especially those who just come to faith. This exhortation reflects the concern that every disciple feels for new converts. We know that following Jesus is difficult. We know the enemy doesn't like it. We know that there will be rough spots in following Jesus. New Christians need lots of encouragement. They need to be set up well. You need to prep them for the journey. And that's what's so exciting but you know, sometimes I talk with some folks and they don't even know how to walk someone who just came to faith into a rich relationship with Jesus. Some of these folks have been saved for a long time. They've even been in a church. 
But it was really important that Barnabas and all those who were leading people to Jesus, that they would help them grow. They would be encouraged. You see, I think new Christians need lots of encouragement. I do. The verb here, the Greek verb here used, is called parakaleo. And parakaleo, the reason I say it, it is a multifaceted verb. So when Barnabas says that he came along and encouraged the believers, it's the idea of standing along somebody in order to provide counsel, to give courage, to give comfort and hope and a positive perspective. I think the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse, starting at verse 11, and you can see it up on the screen. But he is sharing with the church at Thessalonica. He's saying, hey, I was like a spiritual father to you. You can see that. And you know that we, the team, each of you, or treated each of you as a father treats his own children. We pleaded with you at times. We encouraged you and we urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy. For he called you to share in his kingdom and his glory. Let me put it this way. Many of you have been in athletics, but I think Barnabas here, in light of the word uh, encourage, can be looked at as like an athletic coach. A coach, one who challenges without condemning. One who instructs without lecturing. One who inspires without condescending. And helps others toward excellence. Barnabas, in my opinion, was like a coach encouraging and challenging these new believers in Antioch and urging them to grow in God's grace and remain true to their Savior in spite of the temptations and the persecution that they're going to encounter. Now let me say this, all the way throughout the scriptures, believers especially are encouraged to encourage others. I don't think new believers are the only ones who need encouragement. Maybe one of the takeaways you have even this morning is, who in your life do you know needs some encouragement? Who needs their tires pumped. Is God bringing someone to mind right now, or two people, or a family? How can you encourage them? So, many people came to faith. Many were brought to the Lord. How wonderful. How challenging. Wouldn't that be great? Whoa, we have a boatload of people. They are streaming in. How do we do this? How how do we spend time with them? How do we encourage them? And it's really unique, at least as I see this, of what actually happened here. The scriptures tell us that Barnabas went to look for Saul in Tarsus. And the way, again, that this is set up, it, it was a difficult task. Barnabas searched hard for this guy Saul. 
Now, many of you, again, understand who Saul is, but Saul was converted. He came to faith. He was the church's number one enemy, but God changed him completely in Acts chapter 9. We're only in Acts chapter 11, all right? But even back then, Paul, uh, excuse me, Barnabas had a heart for Saul. Saul came to faith. Saul started preaching. A lot of the church was really skeptical. After all, Saul had just been spending his time killing people, killing Christians, and putting Christians in jail. Understandable, right? But Barnabas was the one when he came to Jerusalem, took Saul, and said, hey, you guys, I want you to know he's the real thing. He's a transformed man. He's on our team. So Barnabas had this discernment, and he already was Saul's friend. But it's interesting. If you look at a little bit of history, and this is a little harder, you're just not going to be able, as you read through Acts, see this. But it's been pretty quiet for Saul since his conversion, since Acts chapter 9. And you almost wonder, did God bench him? How come Saul isn't very involved? What is the deal? Uh, Think about it. No Christian had more impressive resume than Saul for ministry among the Jews. You would have thought, okay, I got a ringer here. Let's send him to all the Jewish places and every synagogue, and he'll represent me well there. Well, yet in God's wise providence, and and listen to this, and for his own purposes, God honed his theology, whittled his character, rearranged his priorities, and he taught Paul, uh, Saul, excuse me, again, he's going to be Paul soon, but Saul to walk by means of the Spirit. He literally wasn't benching Paul. He was refining Paul. Now, I want you to know this, is that most scholars believe that Saul lived in Tarsus before he came to Antioch, about 10 years. 10 years. 10 years of residency to prepare Saul for ministry among the Gentiles. You see, God saw that he needed to know more about this culture. So he sent him home to Tarsus. And you say, wait a minute, if that's where Paul was from, and he was, wouldn't he have grown up with this Gentile mentality and understand it? Well, again, because of Saul's education, he probably left Tarsus at about 12 years old to go sit at the feet of the rabbi Gamaliel. He was well advanced in his education, so he actually didn't spend much time in his early years there. Now, if you look at Tarsus, Tarsus has been described as the heart of the Greco-Roman world. It's a meeting place between the East and the West. The vision for ministry that God had given Saul in Damascus, where he told him that he was going to be a missionary to the Gentiles. God has not forgotten it. So 10 years of small-scale ministry in Tarsus gave him the education and the spiritual seasoning that he needed. 
Saul came back with Barnabas and taught with him for a year. These two gifted men formed a powerful ministry team. They literally faced the daunting task of shepherding a large number of new believers in a hostile pagan environment. Their discipleship plan was easy. And we all maybe have different ways of looking on how to make disciples, but this one's always key, no matter what method that you choose. But his plan was to teach large numbers for one year. The most urgent need of these new Christians was being taught the Word of God. And their example is an important one for any church to follow. It is always critical, no matter what we do, as we make disciples, as we help others on the journey, that they have a good understanding of what God's Word is saying and does. The two men harmoniously ministered together in Antioch with great success, not only evangelizing, but establishing this church. I believe, actually, that this is where Saul practiced what he learned about the basics of church formation, organization, and stabilization. The amazing Paul, the prophet, who was going to write all of these New Testament books. Again, this was still Saul here. But he started right here in Antioch. Their goal was simple. Establish an independent community led by indigenous elders, self-sustained and perpetuated by its own evangelical efforts. That was their goal. He was always thinking about the future, about reproduction, and about the kingdom. So if the church is a living organism... Barnabas and Saul wanted the congregation in Antioch to breathe, eat, grow, live, and multiply. Now let's look at the last few verses in this chapter. Acts 11, verse 27. During this time, some prophets traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up in one of the meetings and predicted by the Spirit that a great famine was coming upon the whole Roman Empire. This was fulfilling during or this was fulfilled during the reign of Claudius. So the believers in Antioch decided to send relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea, everyone giving as much as they could. This they did, entrusting their gifts to Barnabas and Saul to take it to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. God used prophets until the canon was completed. Agabus was one of these prophets. And he came to this church and predicted and said, hey, there's going to be some rough times. A famine is coming. So by faith, the Christians at Antioch, these Gentile Christians, took an offering and sent it to the elders of the Jerusalem church. Do you understand how unique this is? 
But in some ways, it shouldn't be too surprising. Remember, Barnabas is one of the teachers. Barnabas is one of the ones instructing them about God and His Word and even God's generosity. Remember, back in Acts chapter 4, it was Barnabas who's one of the first Christians when there were problems that he went and sold land and gave sacrificially to help his Jewish brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. So not only was this church strong in doctrine, but also strong in love. They responded to a need. Everybody gave financially what they could give. And then they sent it down to Jerusalem. Let me say this as we, as we come close here to, to closing up. Generosity is a mark of maturity. You know, preachers feel awkward about talking about it. Christians feel awkward about listening to it. And often the result is a lack of teaching on this vital aspect of discipleship. Let me remind you that Jesus sure talked a lot about money. But God entrusts our time and our treasure and our talents and expects each one who is a God follower to invest. The Acts Church has been inspiring and convicting. It models for us what a healthy, spiritually mature church would look like. Spiritually mature believers are in community that focuses on prayer and the study of God's Word so they can encourage others and be bold and generous to those inside the walls and outside the walls. In fact, these marks ought to be evident when choosing leaders or staff, which simply means that leadership is delayed if these marks are missing. Now again, we may not understand how important this church really is in the New Testament. But let me remind you, when we eventually get to Acts chapter 13... We're going to look at this church again because it was the first church that literally sent out missionaries. And the missionaries they sent out was Paul or Saul. Now, God, uh, let me try to wrap this up. God is teaching us so much from our text today. Honestly, and and maybe some of you even look at the bulletin and we were supposed to go to the end of chapter 12 and my mind was just spinning and there were so many things that God was just shouting at me. Things like suffering means opportunity. And there's times we need to recognize that. That God loves and saves those in, well, unlikely foul places. That the Spirit, as He lives in us, produces fruit and transforms us and gives us joy. That Christians, all Christians, but especially new ones, they just need encouragement. They need good teaching. That Barnabas recruited when he needed help. You know, they were both walking with God, but... You know, Saul didn't just show up in Antioch. Barnabas went and recruited. 
You know, there's times even in our ministry where you may not feel a need until you're recruited. May God continually encourage you to listen to the Spirit. And if there are needs, that you respond to them. I also saw that Saul, as amazing as he was, he needed refinement. And there's times in our life we just need refinement. That God sets us aside so that we can learn and grow in order to be more effective soldiers of the cross. And lastly, every spiritually mature Christian can be generous. You can give something. It is just a fruit. It's so cool how Jesus, especially when he was here on the planet, applauded a widow for a few pennies that she threw in an offering. It's never about how much. It's always about a heart. And may God continually nurture you in these marks of maturity. And may he use his church in an unbelievable way, as an unstoppable force in Fox Lake and into the uttermost part of the world. You see, the task is unfinished. We have been given the opportunity of sharing good news and making disciples. Our adventure in Acts will continue in two weeks. We are going to take a break for Easter. One week. And then we're going to jump right back into Acts and just continue to use these early Christians to motivate and encourage us. Let's pray. Father, we're in awe of how you do things. We just are. We don't get it. And and we just think sometimes we know what's best. Father, would we be so dependent on your spirit? Would we listen to you and take advantage of all the opportunities that you give us, whether it be picking out caracara oranges or nailing or using hammers to nail nails? God, you know where to send us and how to send us. May we be ambassadors of your love wherever that is. And God, would you use our people to bring about revival in even really, really hard places. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Would you stand as we respond?